Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we will be combining a portion of an event that took place on January 13th called Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies in Democracy, and we'll be spending time with the event's main presenter, Jerry Williams. Jerry has been involved in a number of forms of activism, but as a woman of color, she's also aware of the need for white allies to step forward and lead a change among their peers. With the increasing assault on our democracy by forces wishing to pit beleaguered whites against even more beleaguered minorities and people of color, there is a great urgency that we all find our self-interest in halting the erosion of our democratic government. FNVW, that's Friends for a Nonviolent World, sponsored the Beyond the Books event and will continue to act as a conduit for follow-up actions. Jerry Williams joins us via Zoom from Duluth, Minnesota. Jerry, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for doing your presentation that you did back on the 12th of January. Are you satisfied with what happened? I was gratified that people were interested and expressed interest in coming. And we had a turnout of about 60 participants, most from the Midwest, which I did expect, although I, we cast, and I say we, the people who helped to produce the program, cast a, a wide net, you know, to have people from all over come. We had very attentive and high participation of the people that were there. I've gotten feedback that people found it helpful, interesting and helpful. Well, I thought it was very interesting, too. We're going to have our Spirit in Action listeners sit in on your introductory comments. Uh, Of course, the part where we go into breakout rooms, we're not including it all. But I want people to have an idea of what Beyond the Books is about. So we're going to go back to January 13th, and Jerry Williams is our main presenter. Join us on a Zoom call about Beyond the Books, a way forward for white allies in democracy. On this Zoom, participants will learn how and why you can share the message with white peers that they have a stake and an an enlightened self-interest in rejecting the racial narrative of white supremacy and white grievance. In the upcoming breakout sessions, there will be opportunities to generate strategies and actions for anti-racism outreach and identify resources and communities of support. This Zoom is a beginning. It's an exploration No firm outcome, no single solution will result, but insights, innovations, and new ideas can emerge from our shared encounter. A quick word on the use of terms. We know that racial categories are kind of agreed to social myth, especially in our own society, whose biracial and multiracial composition is expanding at an astounding rate. But for purposes of convenience tonight, I will use white to mean people of European ancestry, indigenous for Native peoples, and people of color for African-Americans and other non-whites. So why this talk and why now? Like many of you, I was galvanized by the events following the murder of George Floyd in 2020, the largest and most sustained protest against racialized police brutality in American history that erupted around the country, around the world. 
they were the most diverse protests too, with hundreds of thousands of people of all races and ages engaged. This was, for me, a breathtaking moment in time of radical empathy and possibility for transformation in race relations. In the months that followed, large segments of the white population individually and in groups, reading groups, delved into books on anti-racism. These books rose to the top of the bestseller list as white readers took stock of a racial history few had been taught, or even myself for that matter. This development, heartfelt and necessary as it was, had some built-in limitations. It's human nature for intensity to cool and commitment to wane over time, and it did. Support for Black Lives Matter, for example, fell from its peak 67% among whites in the month following Floyd's murder to 47% in September of 2021. The law and order anti-protest backlash by opponents and their conflating Black Lives Matter with Antifa also contributed to this decline in support. And life intervened. The COVID epidemic continued to upend our work health, routines, and priorities. The presidential election season exhausted all of us with fear and dread. Whites, after reading book after anti-racism book, might start at this point to ask themselves, am I anti-racist yet? And in any case, reading alone wouldn't necessarily predict structural change. I couldn't escape the sense that even for altruistic white people with good intentions, anti-racism was viewed as something optional, perhaps a moral obligation, something nice to do for minorities, but not something that involved a stake in their lives as Americans. For me, the missing link was something to sharpen a focus that could lead white allies to meaningful action. The sum of us, what racism costs everyone, and how we can prosper together by Heather McGee supplied that link. McGee's key insight is that the laws and policies designed by white elite power holders to exclude, exploit, disenfranchise, and publish people of color first and most have grotesquely warped the social, economic, even the physical and spiritual health of all Americans. She writes about the social damage of the drained pool, a metaphor for the public swimming pools that used to flourish in scores of American communities. With the advent of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, City administrators in those towns chose to close down those pools, drain and fill them in with concrete. In some cases, close the parks they were in entirely rather than share their use with African-American residents. whose tax dollars had helped build those pools too. The result was that all residents were deprived of that common social amenity. The threat of losing their supposed superiority in a segregated society resulted in many whites turning away in droves from the very idea of a common good and into the arms of a conservative ideology of disinvestment and free market privatization of the public sphere. The zero-sum thinking that emerged at that time is still with us today, that of a society viewed through the prism of competition. If one group gets rights, opportunities, political representation, there's less for me. It was the power holders who made those decisions that harmed the community. But the narrative began to be developed and amplified by segregationists at that time and political opportunists that people of color were to blame for taking away all the good things in life that white people had previously enjoyed. 
This is the essence of the MAGA Make America Great appeal. And if that other group doing the taking is one that has historically been seen and treated as less than, undeserving, then it was easy to extend the racial animus to policies governing public education, health care, labor market, even access to clean water and air. Zero-sum worked to placate Americans for a long time. As President Lyndon Johnson observed back in 1960, quote, if you can convince the lowest white man he is better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pocket for you, unquote. Well, in the meantime, wealthy whites, the 1%, and the corporations that bought and paid for politicians continue to consolidate power and wealth and drive policy. Today, though, for most white Americans, the presumed advantage they have over minority citizens doesn't reflect the reality of falling wages since the 1970s, crushing debt for many, and for white men especially, suffering among the highest rates of suicide, opioid addiction, alcoholism, the so-called diseases of despair. As McGee writes, we've reached the economic and moral limits of the zero-sum worldview that was given to us at the founding of the nation. Save for the ultra-wealthy, we're all living at the bottom of the drained pool now. The refusal to share across race has created a society with nothing left for itself. Because this zero-sum narrative is so ingrained, it takes a leap of imagination to conceive of it otherwise. And that is where you, white participants in this space, come in. You're the messengers, not people of color. You're the messengers that can find a way to reach out to other whites in your families and social circles, communities, workplaces, and houses of worship. You have a unique role and opportunity to carry out this work among your white peers. McGee ends her book with this message. Many of those in power have made it their overarching goal to sow distrust about the other. They are warning that demographic changes are the unmaking of America. What I've seen is that they're the fulfillment of America. When a nation founded on a belief in racial hierarchy truly rejects that belief, then and only then will we have discovered a new world. Now, before I go on, I want to let you know that when I started the Beyond the Books project in 2020, in the winter of 2020, it was called simply Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies. And it was focused on gaining white support to blunt the voter suppression bills that were being proposed by GOP legislators at that time that targeted, as usual, minority voters. But what I couldn't foresee was what happened on January 6, 2021, and its import. Make no mistake, white supremacy was at the heart of that insurrection. You could see it in the racist banners there, just as in Charlottesville rallies and elsewhere with the mob chanting that Jews will not replace us, demonstrating that the seemingly immortal poison of anti-Semitism fits into that worldview as well. But on that day, 147 lawmakers who demonstrated a new level of anti-democracy and our peril as citizens were willing to overturn the votes, including those of their own constituents of all races by refusing to certify the election results. Even more pernicious and dangerous in the months since the insurrection, GOP legislators have proposed or put in place 
numerous laws to affect the outcomes in elections, local and national, to ensure that going forward, they can never lose. They are taking actions to justify empowering legislatures in GOP-controlled states to dismantle the machinery of elections in which citizens, volunteers such as poll workers who ensure nonpartisan access and representation are replaced with appointed GOP political party operatives. The aim is to seize and maintain through anti-democratic means a permanent minority rule. White people who resist will become collateral damage along with anyone else who doesn't submit to this anti-democratic arrangement. If these actions succeed in dislodging the fundamental pillar that democracy is founded on, the peaceful transfer of power, then, as columnist Tom Friedman writes, America isn't just in trouble. It is headed for what scientists call an extinction-level event. The violent uprising of January 6th and its aftermath convinced me that whites had to be more than allies for racial equality. They also have to be allied to preserve democracy, just why I added those words in democracy in the project's title. Because you recognize the fight means your survival as whites in America too, an urgent truth you need to impart to your white peers. Indigenous and people of color are already in this fight as we have always been the motive force behind movements of freedom and justice that push our country to live up to its stated ideals. Passage of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act are the strongest and perhaps the last remaining means we have to overturn this slow-moving coup and forestall a tragic outcome. So you white allies have a huge responsibility and an opportunity and the stakes couldn't be higher. So let's get together and learn how we can do that. As I've mentioned, we're gonna have five breakout rooms organized along different topics, and you'll be able to see those descriptions in the chat. We all then broke out into our smaller groups, discussing and brainstorming actions and ways forward, and then came back together to share the fruits of our small group, and for some more insights and incentive from Jerry Williams. Here's some of that part of the event, Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies in Democracy. In listening to you talk about things that happened in your group, some thoughts came to mind. I realized, I don't know anybody who doesn't agree with me. (laughs) Everybody in my social circle agrees with me. So that's a failing. That's a problem because how are we going to find those grounds where we can meet? It can be done. I wanted to show you something that I came across. This is from a group called Faithful Democracy. It's a consortium of all kinds of religious groups. And during the election, they had these postcards you could ask for. I got 20 of these postcards. And it's blessing our postal workers in the pandemic for caring for our ballots in this election, for safety as they keep the nation connected, for robust support to continue delivering our needs. And I thought, you know, and it's a regular postcard on the back. I thought, this is great. This is a great conversation starter. We had a slowdown in our postal service. That's because the head of that government body that administers it said, we're going to have a slowdown. He's a Trump appointee. And we can talk about why we need to have these public services, public unions, this public service delivers medicines from the VA. You know, we need to make those connections of saying, you know, we need these things that are for the common good 
And who are the enemies of the common good? Who are the bodies that are saying we want to shut them down, close them out? So that's just one thing. The other thing I wanted to mention, getting back to the Freedom to Vote Act, you may have heard a nonpartisan group of young people staged a 16-day hunger strike in front of the White House. They put their lives, they put their bodies on the line. This was such a creative use of nonviolent direct action witness that the grown-ups didn't do, that the young people did. And I hope in many of your groups, and certainly in mine, this came up again and again, that this cohort of youth is really special. They have many, many challenges that we didn't have, but they're finding creative ways. Mutual aid is a big thing among young people, you know, so finding each other and meeting our needs. If you are able and talking to someone across the aisle, across the street, across whatever, in each of these engagements, you're making a pitch based on replacing a narrative with a new one that is fair, practical, and appealing. It can be as simple as saying, why don't we have nice things? Why can't we have nice things? (laughs) You know, that those other countries have. Start a discussion that way. If we recognize and we could point out that the powers that prosper from our discord and our separation and how to repudiate that, then we can point to a future that's very appealing to people, more so than this siren call of, let's blame somebody else because I'm miserable. If you do have these interactions, as somebody else mentioned, I would suggest that you don't begin them by invoking intersectionality or reparations. I don't even use the term diversity is our strength or diversity is beautiful. But I do say that diversity is a fact. From the first colonizers who got here and met a flourishing, well-established society since the first slave ship unloaded its human cargo in 1619, our attitude and practices can make diversity a strength. And we've seen how using diversity to divide us has just made us weak. Even the Russians and the Chinese know all they need to do is just chime in about racism and, you know, our hair's on fire and we just don't know that we're being played. So it's kind of a national security thing, too. We do need to get along as a country. I guess I could just say also that if you're engaged with someone who's who's just not persuadable and is, you know, using disrespectful language and stuff, you know, I don't waste a brain cell on that person. Just walk away. And yet there's room for compassion because we've inherited a, a broken system that none of us started. And there's a difference between malice and lack of experience, lack of exposure. I'm still often surprised at meeting white people who have never had any interactions with the person of color. Again, those are patterns of residence and education and so forth. So those can be bridged. I think about that woman, a white woman, who learning about the last words that George Floyd uttered on this earth, crying out for his mother. And she said, I felt summoned. And she joined the protests for that. Her heart was moved. We need to keep looking for those heart connections as well as working skillfully politically as allies. Allyship can be costly, not only in mentally and in your time, but, you know, the young woman in Charlottesville who was peacefully demonstrating and was killed when a white supremacist ran her over and killed her. The 17-year-old Rittenhouse loaded with a rifle in a town that's not his to protect property that wasn't his killed two white protesters, you know, people who were protesting another shooting of an unarmed black man. 
And the forces on the right are going to make that allyship or try to make that allyship more expensive by instituting all kinds of rules against one of our fundamental rights, the Bill of Rights, the right of assembly, turning protests into class C felonies and years in jail. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think if you're talking to people who realize, you know, you bring this to their attention, it's just a matter of saying, do you want to live or do you want your children to live under this kind of authoritarian regime that relies on brutality and punishment against its citizens? And if you don't, you have a choice to withhold your vote from them, you know, while you still can. So these are just, you know, sort of thoughts that I think we can develop and work with as we find more openings, more ways to bring forward this vision of life that is possible, this new world that McGee talks about. I'll close by saying that I've been reading the Acts of the Apostles as my New Year's reading, rereading it. I like it because it's it's active. You know, there's shipwrecks, there's breakouts and, you know, near escapes and things like that. But what's compelling to me is people who a small group who were going to these distant lands, different cultures and not speaking the same language, able to coalesce, to cohere around an idea, an ideal that they had. And they created a community, a community of sharing where people were sharing their goods with each other. This was before it was called Christianity, it was called the way. And this is where we're hearing that there's, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no black, there's no white. We're united around this ideal. And so I would say, go forward as apostles. <laughs> go forward to save this country. Go forth to save yourself. Thank you. For Spirit in Action today, folks, you just listened to a presentation that took place on January 13th. Jerry Williams co-organized this with a couple people. Shell and Leah are important names that you should get to know. Really good folks doing the good work. And FNVW, Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW.org is their website. They're carrying on some of this work. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you just heard about what Beyond the Books is about. And it seems to me, Jerry, that right at the center of this is Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us. How did you run into the book? Who gave it to you? How did it hit you when you read it? Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier because I don't remember how I was introduced to Heather McGee and her work. It may have been a TED Talk. It may have been just something I picked up, but I listened to the talk and I felt I really had to read the book because her message was so, well, it was so rational. It was so inclusive. It was so hopeful that I started to think, you know, how, how do you make this vision operational? How do you apply this? And an earlier version I had of Beyond the Books was just Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies. And that was uh, about a year ago that I started writing this outline about what that would be. My main focus at that time was about voter suppression. And I had written an essay called, So You Want to Be a White Ally? And to me, the natural follow-on for that was that you would help to support voting rights. And it was really after the election that you started to see these very draconian voter bills, most of which are laws now throughout the country, voter suppression specifically. So I felt that, well, that train has left the station. I don't see a way that this can be stopped, even if there are lawsuits going forward. That's always the case. 
but they won't be overturned, if at all, and certainly not in time for an election. And so I started to think, well, this is really such a threat to democracy. And some of those laws and other ones I'll talk about, too, that are repressing freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, protests, are going to hurt all of society, not just minorities. So I began to think that, you know, we need a way forward. We need allies in democracy. Obviously, it won't happen without everybody's heavy lifting. But really, this focus on it gets to the heart of what kind of democracy are we going to be and who belongs in this democracy is another question that McGee talks about very heavily because part of this centuries-long practice in our society has been for a, a small elite of white men coming forward and establishing laws and policies. And part of their bargain for bringing in the rest of white America was this bargain that you'll always have somebody to look down on, and we will kind of throw you the crumbs of leftover from society, as long as you don't really try to change this whole basic plan. But you'll always be one step above one group in America. And that has worked time and time again to evoke this and also to stimulate grievance against the others that are cutting in on your rights as a white American, your status as a white American. As described in the piece you played, this drained pool, the drained pool politics. Mm, I love that image. It's so evocative and it's something people can really relate to. So that drained pool idea of scarcity and competition has, you know, it's, it's metastasized in our society right now and what we're seeing, because I think it's not working as well as it was for white Americans to have this assumption that there's the good things in life and it's other people who are threatening to take it away from us. You know, one of the things you mentioned is our society is becoming more mixed race all the time. That That's spreading wider and wider. Pretty soon we won't be able to say white and black. There's still always some way, some group you can specify as the outgroup. You know, the people, the ugly people, the dumb people, the handicapped people, the old people. I mean, there's any number of ways you can suppress people. But as you said also in your comments, It'll take a while for that to arrive before we become so shared that we can't limit people based on the color of their skin. Right now, limiting based on racial heritage still works, colored people or just foreigners. One of the ones I've been amazed by is it seems right now there's an employment shortage. That is to say there's a whole lot of jobs that could use somebody working for it. And yet people of color from over the border the southern border in particular, build the wall type adversaries, if you will. They are being limited from coming in the United States. And I think it's hurting us all. <laughs> I think it seems like that would be one really obvious thing to say. It's like, wait, we need all kinds of employees. It's not they're taking our jobs. They're willing to do the jobs that no one else is willing to do. Please let them in. How can we do this division of people based on color skin or where they come from or anything like that? Have there been particular parts of things in our society where the democracy has been, I think, is moving towards being suppressed that have felt particularly hit home for you? Yes. You know, when I talk about George Floyd and his actual physical murder, you know, the rawness and the brutality of that, 
cut through a lot of filters we have and empathy that people felt. They felt that on a heart level, the people who went out and protested. I feel that the voting suppression to me is a civic murder. It would be hard to describe the psychic toll of feeling that your citizenship at any moment is contingent on where you live or who's in power. And again, this is, an, this is something that has been a tool of oppression throughout our history, you know, going back to the poll taxes and, you know, the literacy tests and so forth and so on. Again, this all depends on the whims and the largesse of what state you live in. A couple of years ago, the people of Florida came forward with a referendum to restore the voting rights of ex-incarcerated people. It's like 65% of Floridians got this passed. The party in power in that state, I call them the godless oppressive punishers. (laughs) (laughs) I like that acronym. Sometimes I add Q for their crazy violent collaborators. So it's the GOPQ said, all right, well, you know, you citizens, you've decided this, but guess what? We're not going to allow that vote until these ex-felons pay their parking fines or pay their court fees or some other onerous things that they demanded and couldn't even supply in their records what each ex-felon had to, to pay up, to pony up, to have the right to vote. And so this affected potentially hundreds of thousands of voters, and it's still even if they could pay off these court costs or whatever it might be. The idea that your own government, state government, is against your voting, you know, is a deterrent. That's what I mean when I say psychic toll. And it was also hurtful to me in the current Voting Rights Act problem. It looks like that those voting rights laws aren't going to go anywhere. Constantly, you would see groups of Black ministers in Georgia or Alabama or some state saying, this is, you know, we need to vote, or votes are being suppressed. It was true, but the optic was all wrong. The optic was that, oh, only Black people care about this, and this only affects them, instead of this is an American right. And we've seen in our history that the laws and the policies that hurt minorities bounce back and hurt the wider society too. Even in this case, you'll see that some of these draconian laws are harmful to people with disabilities because they have demeaning and off-putting regulations that you have to have an extra person to witness that you're actually who you are and then make it harder for you to get to the the polls themselves. They've cut down on mail-in ballots, even though that's been done for decades in some Western states. And yet other states will say, well, this is an invitation to fraud. And so really, you know, the the slogan about, you know, an injustice to one is an injustice to all is more than a slogan. And I saw how that played out with a lot of concrete examples in Heather McGee's book. And I thought this is something that you can bring to white people of goodwill who've read these books and need a way to get beyond just feeling sad and guilty. And that white people need to be the messengers. I'm not the messenger to other white people. White people need to reach out to their peers. They're the ones to do it, and now's the time to do it. The messenger or non-messenger you're listening to is Jerry Williams. She's here today for Spirit in Action, and you find us on the website northernspiritradio.org. Links to Jerry, FNVW, which I mentioned earlier, and we'll include whatever we can about this presentation, Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies in Democracy. 
This is Spirit in Action, and we've got on our website 16 and a half years of people working for world healing, including Jerry Williams, FNVW, and so many other good folks. Also on our site, you can post comments on this program. Give us your feedback. We love feedback. We actually listen, so please do speak to us. And also, there's a place to support us on our website. And also remember to support your local community radio station. There's some 42 stations nationwide that carry Northern Spirit Radio programming. So please support them with your hands and with your wallets. Democracy grows when people participate. There are vested interest in some people in suppressing both the media and the news. And so that's why it's extremely important that you lift up alternative media like the community radio stations. Please support them. Again, Jerry Williams is here right now. She's up in Duluth. At one point, Jerry, you lived in the Twin Cities. And when you worked for the State Department, where did you live in general? The embassy or consulates that I worked in were in Portugal, Guatemala, Brazil, and South Africa. And how many years did you live overseas? I was in the Foreign Service for a total of 20 years. You know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, lived in Togo. I actually lived in a dictatorship where, of course, they didn't say dictator, they said the president. But I got to see a little bit about how suppression, how anti-democratic work functions. A lot of people think it's all stormtroopers breaking down your door, but it's much more subtle and much more effective than that, I think. Did you see any particular cases in your time living abroad that were either hopeful or discouraging about how we can pursue democracy? Well, Mark, I'll approach it this way. The experience of living abroad or or even just visiting abroad is something that I wish was more a part of the experience of Americans. When you are outside of your society, you get a view of it that you really can't get as, as an armchair traveler. You see countries, cultures that are finding solutions to different problems. They're approaching them in a different way just broadens your sense of possibility and empathy as well. And so I would just say that even if you're not getting on a boat or a plane, if you're exposing yourself to different cultures in the U.S., it's only to the good. I think that we just learn so much more from people's perspectives who've lived a different kind of life, who've walked a different kind of path. And uh, certainly that was my experience living abroad. Did you grow up with any insights into the kind of, I sense in you, Jerry, a real desire for world healing, the the main objective of spirit in action. What kind of family did you grow up in? What kind of political activist interests, worldview, did people get to visit those other places like you just mentioned to see the different cultures? It's interesting you should mention that about the visiting part. I'll start with saying that I was was actually born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when my father came back in World War II, which was still a segregated army, got a job with the U.S. Postal Service, saw a job opening in St. Paul, Minnesota. So the first thing that this government agency provided was the possibility for mobility for my family. And the motive for leaving Tulsa, Oklahoma, was so that my sister and I would not grow up under segregated education. So we arrived in in Minnesota at six months, (laughs) the age of six months. And I have to say that for many reasons, including the fact that it's such a beautiful place, is that I owe so much 
to the education and upbringing that I got in the state of Minnesota. I had a superb public education there. And my mother was a secretary, one of the secretaries for the governor of Minnesota. And later on, she worked for the Lutheran Board of World Missions. And so she would come home with these stories of these missionaries coming back with, you know, beautiful carved figurines and talking about their experiences. It opened up a wider world for me. My father, as I said, had served in World War II in Northern Africa and Italy. And he brought back stories about Italians and their way of life. He also was a musician. And we always had music in our house. We had a very ecumenical music approach. So we'd have a stack of records with, you know, Bach and Billie Holiday. So I grew up feeling I didn't have barriers to a wider world. They're very proud of being African-American. That was very much valued in my household. But it wasn't a, a small vision that we're just an oppressed group and we don't have any other outlets. We don't have any other interests. It wasn't all about race. Now, I must say, Minnesota had racial covenants, redlining, you know, all of that. And I'd say because the Black population at, at that time was so small, it was really the Native American community that was, you could, you could just see the ongoing oppression of Indian people. I went to school with a lot of Native kids, and I'd be in a history class in which the teacher would talk about Native Americans as if they were extinct, like dinosaurs. And there they were, <laughs> alive and well in the classroom. So this is very troubling and perplexing to young people because it just wasn't talked about. It just was. I do have to say that I was nurtured and encouraged in my interests in reading and in writing. I started writing poems and things from a very early age by teachers and librarians, 99.9% .9 of whom were white women. So I can't be categorical about white people are this or white people are that. There are people who dominate and hold on to power, and then there are those who don't. And they come in a broad range of colors and genders. You always went to public schools? When you went to college, where did you go? I started out at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. I was there for about a year and a half. I left after that time and I did some other things, but I ended up in Boston, worked at a publishing company, found out that some of the editors who worked there, I was just an assistant, had gone to this a school where they had a publishing program. You know, so I had landed in a publishing company and thought, I've gone to heaven, you know. I'm being paid to read books. <laughs> so the school was Simmons College, had a school of publication and journalism. And so I ended up finishing my undergraduate work there with a, a minor in Latin American studies. And so I studied that and I studied Portuguese because I'd seen this movie, Black Orpheus, when I was 11 years old. And I said, any place that makes music like that, I'm going there. <laughs> And it was also one of the first movies I'd seen full of people of color and their lives, you know. And so ultimately, I did go to Brazil, you know, and I graduated from there. I came back to Minnesota and I worked as a intern at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And how did that lead to the State Department? You did say that one of your overseas sites that you worked at for the State Department was Portugal. So I got that, you know, Portuguese, both for Brazil and in Portugal itself. Was that your door in? 
The route was a little more circuitous because I found out early on that working for a daily newspaper and having a deadline was not the life for me because I could never meet deadlines and I could never finish (laughs) what I was writing. And I always had to perfect the comma. So I knew that was not the life for me. I did freelance editing and I worked in a couple of companies doing writing, but felt after a while I needed a change. And I was actually working the night shift as a concierge in a 600-room luxury hotel in Minneapolis, (laughs) reading Ms. Magazine, and came across an ad in the back that said, have you considered a career in the Foreign Service? Well, no, I'd never heard of it. I thought, what's that? Is that like the the Forest Service? What is it? And so there was just a process of taking a test and, you know, going on to the next level and taking more tests and filling out applications and so forth and so on. And so I applied for what was then called the U.S. Information Agency. It was an independent foreign affairs agency. And one of their career tracks was what they call public diplomacy. And so it was working with journalists in a country, being the spokesperson, and also uh, for all kinds of academic exchanges, including the Fulbright program and many other cultural programs. That's how I I landed and, you know, and took my husband with me. (laughs) (laughs) After I left Boston and came back to Minneapolis, I have to say that I was probably America's most apolitical young person. It was not on my radar. I was not involved in or really heard much about the civil rights movement. You know, I was still not quite a teenager. And my family did not prioritize that. As I look back on it, I think it wasn't because they hadn't suffered discrimination or or supported the movement. I think it was their way of protecting my sister and I from that hard history. And I think this this happens a lot, or at least it did in my generation of African Americans, that slavery was not discussed. It was just too painful. And I think those parents at that time did not want to put that burden on their children. But in any case, when I was in Boston, I was helping a friend move to a new apartment, carrying down a box of books. On top of that was a book about South Africa. It was a photojournalist a Black South African photojournalist who had done a clandestine photo record of apartheid in South Africa. And I remember sitting down on the steps and just looking at this book and not believing that this is something that existed in the 20th century. But I didn't do anything about it. Flash forward to Minneapolis. I'm back there and I'm walking down on Hennepin Avenue and I passed the storefront of the American Friends Service Committee that had a display in the front window about South Africa. So I went in, and I came out about 45 minutes later, a member of the Minneapolis Anti-Apartheid Committee, <laughs> committees, Quaker committees, <laughs> who get you involved every time. And that was really my introduction to activism of all kinds, because you can start to see the links, the ties, how these forces of oppression overlap. And then also an introduction to nonviolent methods, tools approaches and solidarity. That's where it started. And it's led to involvement in various things. And then, of course, that's when I started going to Quaker meeting and eventually became a member of the Religious Society of Friends in 1994. Well, let's go back to Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies in Democracy. 
you did your initial presentation. We went into breakout groups. We came out, shared some of our experience. You had some more things to say. One of the things that you said is, my hope is that you will self-organize and go forth like missionaries. What did you mean by that? What's your vision? What, what did you see as the hopeful future? It's tied up in your words, hopeful future. Because I feel that if white allies can talk to their neighbors, family members, and present to them the idea that if other people get their full economic and social rights, it doesn't mean that you lose. I've seen a little slogan that said, it's not a pie. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that is something that's promoted in our society all the time. You know, dog-eat-dog competition. And I actually think, you know, this came out of my experience in South Africa, that I think it was underlying the uh, attitudes of some of the, the hardcore whites there, which is that if we don't suppress the Black South Africans, if they get power, they'll do to us what we did to them. There'll be revenge. And I sometimes wonder if that's an unspoken uh, it's not unspoken. As a matter of fact, I've read about uh, someone on Fox News, a commentator saying, you know, with all of these riots and protests, doesn't it seem to you like it's people trying to get even? So it needs white people to say to their peers, things aren't looking so great for you right now. You know, white people are overdosing and leading indicators of suicide and the health is poor and young people coming up are buried in debt. None of this is the fault of minorities or immigrants. And so really, it needs for white people to put forward a vision for their peers that change needs to happen and everybody will benefit. All boats will rise. There are so many ways in which the drained pool, that that methodology, that way of seeing the world, the world is seeing it as a pie. I don't want to give anybody else a piece. It hurts us so badly, which is why exactly your title, you know, it's a way forward for white allies in democracy. Give away democracy so that someone else doesn't get equal rights with me so I can be one step higher on the ladder than someone else. It's a very sad world. Hey, Mark, I have a story for you that I just remembered about my foreign service experience that links back to my past. It was my first assignment in Lisbon. So I was a junior officer. And on one particular day, the ambassador was going to have a reception for a group of Oklahomans who were, you know, on a European tour and they knew each other. And so he was going to have this reception. And so when things like that happen, you know, call will go out, are any of you from this state or know this group or something like that? So since I was born in Tulsa and still had grandparents and relatives there, even though I was a junior officer, I was invited to this reception. I'm at the reception. And people find out, oh, well, she's from Tulsa. <sighs> they come over and they talk to me and everything. And it turns out that my grandmother, who was a well-known caterer in Tulsa, <laughs> had catered gala events for these people. Oh, Lucille, she catered my wedding, you know, this, that, and the other, and so forth and so on. <laughs> and I just, there was so much irony <laughs> in this situation that I escaped that state. And I left dear old Tulsa because of the segregation. And yet I was here in this foreign country representing my country. So it's, there's kind of a full circle feeling to it. And as I say, rich with irony. 
Today for Spirit in Action, we're talking to Jerry Williams, and she was part of giving a presentation back on the 13th of January called Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies in Democracy. You're going to find some links on Northern Spirit Radio to help you follow up with that kind of work, because really what we need is a broad-based work of all white allies to make sure our democracy continues. Part of what happened in that session that Jerry Williams led, along with people from FNVW, the Friends for Nonviolent World, we were strategizing on what we could do to make this happen. I didn't hear completely easy answers come out of that. And I suppose that's a good thing, isn't it, Jerry? If people think it's too easy, then maybe they'll not be really prepared for the work. Mm-hmm. Well, there's always the issue of making a concept operational. I think in general, what is needed for all of us in talking to peers is a better analysis of power. A lot of the power, a lot of the things that sway what happens is is not so obvious. It's slightly hidden. And I think about the role of corporations. To me, they're just the inheritors of our bewigged white forefathers, the landowners, and the business imperative that seems to rule a lot of the decisions going forward. For example, corporations, you can identify the Koch brothers, for example, Koch Industries, as a leading industry that's that's been against climate change policy and lots of other things. The Koch brothers are also big contributors to the United Negro College Fund. They're sponsors of some of the programs we like on PBS. You know, so how that corporate imperative is embedded and how things happen. I mean, people might be unhappy about Joe Manchin. You need look no further than who are his big donors to his campaign or any politician's campaign. So this is a source for power. I think it's quite interesting that Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar is writing about and putting forward antitrust legislation. And this is something that can be very consequential. And I think post-COVID, we can't even really begin to imagine what kind of changes this once-in-a-century experience is going to have for us. And one model, I think, for the sort of society that we're talking about with the common good, one model for that is the healthcare workers. What have they been modeling? Compassion, service, and sacrifice. It's so visible and it's happening every day. On the other hand, look at the policies you get from the goddess oppressive punishers. You know, book banning, acting like two-bit scrooges over our tax money to support people in a once-in-a-century health crisis. You know, no, it's, that's not enough. Coming up with laws to make life more miserable for transgender kids. You have these two opposing poles for what we want society to be. And I think we just need to be constantly lifting this up and pointing this out. Underneath all the advertising and the glittering objects, you know, <laughs> you notice how soon after the protest that all of a sudden critical race theory became a big thing. And if I were a white person talking to my white peers, I would just pivot and deflect and say, oh, yeah, what about critical race fact? (laughs) Which is you as a white person are poorer than you've ever been, and your kids are are in hock. So what is it about complaining and grievance about Black people? How is that materially affecting your life when you look at what matters to you? There's so many ways in which we need to rise up, be observant, and change this for the good of all. I do especially want to say thank you 
as a person of color yourself, as an African-American, to let white people know that your self-interest is in this too. It's not one against another. It's us together. It's going forward. E pluribus unum, right? In unity, there is strength. Any last words you want to say to get people to go out and buy Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone, How We Can Prosper Together? Did you want to offer one more commercial for Heather McGee? What I did want to say, you know, that people have asked me about the title, Beyond the Books. I hasten to add, it's not because I'm against books. I know you love books. I was a book editor. (laughs) (laughs) I love books. Uh, I love reading. Literacy saved my life. So it it isn't that, but I think that the situation we're in is so dire for democracy. I think of the many shocking things that the former White House occupant said wasn't reported on very much, wasn't noticed very much. It was after Colin Kaepernick had taken a knee. The ex-president said, called him names and said, maybe he shouldn't be here. That was so shocking to me. Right. Because of this idea that an American citizen can be discussed that way and dismissed that way and just think that you have the power to make it so. It was one of the first things that the Nazis did with Jews was to revoke their passports along with many, many, of course, they couldn't vote. <laughs> you know, so it, it's a continuum from you. You can't be this. You can't teach in a university. You can't sit on a park bench, which is one of these Nazi rules, To You can't be. So it's a very slippery slope. And I think that people just need to stand up for democratic values all the time. Anyway, call out when it's happening, because it might not be happening to you right now. But as I talked about in in my talk, these laws against protest that are being promulgated, you know, it's so ironic in a country that was created out of protest is being criminalized. And that is going to apply to everybody who goes against anti-democratic forces. So now's the time when you need to be engaged on all levels and in all ways to protect democracy. Well, thank you for standing up for democracy. Thank you for standing up for the good of all loving seeing the big picture and helping other people open their eyes to it too. And thanks for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for the opportunity, Mark. Again, we've been speaking with Jerry Williams. She led a session called Beyond the Books, A Way Forward for White Allies in Democracy as African-American herself, person who's served in the State Department in a number of different countries. She brings to us a very excellent view on what we can do in the world. Please remember to reach out to the FNVW, the Friends for Nonviolent World.org. There are links on nordenspiritradio.org so that you can continue in partnership in this work for democracy. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.